0: Hi and welcome to the podcast. You're having tea with Alice. This week's episode is with Corey Tut of Deadly Science so we talked about his project, why he got into it, some of the problems of Aboriginality in Australia um, and the history of Australia, the way that it's taught. I had such a fantastic time in having this conversation. I hope you enjoy listening to it as much as I enjoyed having it. I hope you've watched Savage on Amazon Prime and um, People who've been coming along and watching my Instagram Lives, which are every night except Saturday night, 8.30pm Australian time, 11.30am UK time, and then some ridiculous hour of the morning in the US. But I am putting more and more of them up on Patreon for subscribers. If you are a subscriber or a supporter on Patreon, uh, I'm making them available at every level, not just the $5 video level, because I know... Um, times are tough if you can't um, afford to support me on Patreon, that is, you know, we're, we're going through a global pandemic, it is 100% understandable, and if I am a, a luxury in your life, I would understand you not wanting to uh, spend your money on that anymore, but just generally for the people who have been supporting me on Patreon, on uh, what, with emails, with letters, um, with kind feedback, it has really made this time um, bearable in a way that I know that it isn't for all of my colleagues. So thank you so much for your support, whether it's financial or whether it's just reaching out. Uh, email me anytime, Fraser at gmail.com. Tweet me at alliterative, A-L-I-T-E-R-A-T-I-V-E. The same on Instagram. Um, I can't wait to see you out in the world again. And I'm going to stop rambling and let you get on with listening to the podcast with Corey Tut. You're having tea with Alice.
1: Hello, welcome to Tea with Alice. Who are you and what are you drinking?
2: Uh, my name is Corey Tutt. I am the founder of Deadly Science and I am drinking some Macona Gold, which is coffee. Oh, it's instant. That is coffee. Um. And it's, it's instant because we are in lockdown and I am too scared to go out and get a barista make coffee. So,
1: <laughs> Do you like instant coffee or is it like very clearly a second best?
2: Oh, look, it's, um, you yeah, know, beggars can't be choosers. <laughs>
1: <laughs> the only coffee I've ever really been able to drink was when I was a kid in Burma, now Myanmar, um, and there was this stuff that was called three-in-one we would have with our breakfast and it was basically a third coffee powder a third powdered milk and a third sugar
2: oh wow it so just
1: it came in this packet and it was just so milky and so sweet
2: I should I tell you the story think. of how I drank it came to drink coffee and as much coffee as I do now um yes. so when I was 16 I left school and became a zookeeper as you all do um <laughs> it's completely normal um, and. I quickly, um, the days were really long, but you quickly form a routine, which was um, morning coffee, morning tea coffee, lunchtime coffee. Um, and that, <laughs> that came routine. Um, and the coffee we had there was um, substandard rations, which is um, Nest Cafe. And it wasn't gold, it was, um, you know, budget hotel stuff. And um, later, I became an alpaca shearer. And again, it was so regimented, (laughs) Um, 6am start, coffee, 10am morning tea, lunchtime coffee. Um, And then I didn't think we
1: had enough alpacas to warrant a full time shearing position.
2: We have 250,000 in Australia. Um, and, And that was as of five years ago. Um, and we have two different types of our packers. We have wakayas, which are the woolly ones that everyone's used to seeing. And then you've got these cool Suri our packers, um, Suri like your iPhone. Um, but, and they have dreadlocks. So they, um, their fleece takes a lot longer to grow. Um, and no one told
1: them that that's culturally insensitive these days. Ah,
2: yes. (laughs) It's very culturally insensitive. Um, and they, they also, um, so what they do is they let their fleece grow for three years. Before they actually shear them. And they look really cool. So, if um, your listeners at home listen, uh, look up Peruvian alpaca, they will see this really long, dreadlocked alpaca with these hair ties. Um, cool. So, they invented the man bun. <laughs>
1: <laughs> That's pretty amazing. So, you said you're the founder of Deadly Science. Do you want to explain that a bit before we get into the uncertain part of this podcast?
2: Yeah, so I'm a Camillaro man. Um, I've got Aboriginal heritage, and I started Deadly Science because, um, you know, when we think of Aboriginal kids, we don't necessarily think, oh, they love science, or, you know, um, they love learning. We think of sports stars, we think of artists, we don't really think of scientists. And um, I'm someone that's worked in the animal industry and in the science industry for many years, but I'd never really met any other Aboriginal scientists. I've met the odd one here and there, but we're so few and far between, which didn't make sense to me because we are the first scientists. Um, If you think of the world's first fish traps, you think how we we manage the land um, in such a way. It wasn't a mistake. This was trial and error, experimenting um, and for the just tens did. of
1: thousands of years at that.
2: Yeah, and we didn't get taught this at school. We got taught that um, Captain Cook and his merry men came and rescued our our people. Um, but it, it's, it really wasn't the truth at all. We, we'd we actually learned how to manage the land. Um, I alluded to the world's first fish traps. And just to give your listeners an idea of how a fish trap works, especially the first ones ever created, um, if you've got an ocean pool and you're at the high tide, A lot of sea creatures get stuck in your ocean pool and it's the same sort of system. So building a wall um, and basically the high tide comes over um, and when the tide goes out, all the fish and crabs and stuff get stuck inside the trap. Um, But that that takes experimenting. Um, You don't work that out unless you trial that. Um, And that was something that we did for thousands of years.
1: Yeah, that's really interesting. So you started this project, which is an outreach project or?
2: Um, yeah, so basically I started talking to um, to Mob and Redfern and this is part of the AIM program, Australian Indigenous Mentoring Experience. And I was talking to Aboriginal kids and we'd talk about space stations and um, all these different cool things that are, are science, you know, um, glow-in-the-dark mice for medical research, how that happens. And they, these kids were just enthralled by... Um, science and how simple I could put it, um, and they never really saw themselves in that that footnote. Um, so it was like it was really interesting because we would have these career days, and there'd be army, there'd be sport, there'd be art, but there was no science, which didn't make sense. Um, you know why was it that we were not encouraging Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander kids to take up science? It didn't make sense to me at all. So I um, ended up Googling most remote schools in Australia and I found schools with 15 books in their whole school. That was all they had. Um, And they had a lot of kids. um, And so I packed up every single book I owned and I started sending books. And then that evolved into telescopes and then that evolved into um, doing Skype sessions with those talks I just mentioned. Um, And I just found these kids so engaged. And all they needed um, was an inch, and a bit of belief that they could do it. And you know, the notion that if you look through a telescope, you're doing science. So technically, you're a scientist because you are you are discovering things and asking the questions that is just completely natural for us to ask. And that's what science is. And science is a form of hope, because if you want to, um, if you want to cure cancer, or if you want to know how the ocean works so we can enhance its energy um, so we can make um, the cost of living cheaper, then that's a form of hope. It's a hope for someone. Um,
1: Yeah. This is one of the really interesting sort of, I guess, oblique forms of oppression that happens when you have a kind of a colonial experience, which is that the colonists, colonising culture particularly, British scientific culture gets characterized as forward-looking, and the culture that is uh, imposed on gets cast as sort of cast in stone. It doesn't move forward from where it is once the colonists arrive. It's always either going to adopt the new culture that's moving forward or it's going to stay stuck in the past forever. That's a that's a sort of a rhetorical trick. It's a, you know, it's not a reality, but it can certainly friends of mine who I've spoken to about it. It can make you feel like you're a traitor to your own culture if you're exploring new things, and that's a really pernicious and nasty way to sort of keep people trapped, I think or it can be
2: yeah, definitely, and i mean i can I can simplify this in such a way that um, will be understandable for you listeners is that Aboriginal people invented bread right, mm-hmm. and we we can prove this that Aboriginal people were eating bread 40,000 years ago. Now, and it could even be longer. We simply don't know. But if we were to accept that part of history, that Aboriginal people invented bread, which is true, and own that as Australians, um, and if you, you know, if you look at the Egyptians, the Mayans, the Aztecs, um, these amazing Ancient civilizations that had this technology, and we admire them um, because you know we take that technology today and you know we are here because of what they invented and what they experimented with and if we took that and applied that to Aboriginal people and had some ownership over you know some of the amazing stuff that Aboriginal people used to do and it was day to day life and what we had our inventions our science and we to take some of that good and to look at, say, the pyramids as an Egyptian person and say, you know, this is our landmark, this is, you know, this is what our country is known for, you have to take some of the bad. And some of the bad with the pyramids is that there was centuries of black slavery to build those pyramids and genocides and the pharaohs weren't nice people. (laughs) Um, (laughs) You know, we know that they weren't nice people, but we still go to museums to look at them. Um, yeah. Well,
1: according to the history of of the Jewish people, and also Jewish slaves. Yeah. Uh, uh,
3: yeah. But people would
1: rather believe. I think there's a lot of people who would rather believe that aliens built the pyramid than that there was such a thing as as science that went both forwards and then backwards.
2: I think that there's you know there's so many forms of part of history that are just horrible, and we would rather just put a carpet over it. But to accept some of the good, we need to take some of the bad. Um, and that's what I see uh, with Aboriginal culture, and there'll be people that disagree with me, and that's fine. But I think that kids should learn that we come from the country that invented bread. Um, you know, we had we had so many different ways of managing the land. Um, for example, if a humpback whale washed up on a beach in Sydney or on Gadigal land, you know, our people would make fishing hooks out of its bones and use its oil. Um, mm. You know that that's incredible like you know to know that you know indigenous people from australia and new zealand were using whale oil to cook with um it changes the perspective of what we learn the hunter forager um sort of you know hunter forager living off berries um not really sophisticated you know that's what we were taught at school
1: yeah I remember learning when I was quite young, so this could be like bad memory, anecdotal stuff. But learning about the quite complicated seasonal calendar, yeah, or specifically for the Sydney region, this, this, and and how much more accurate it was to the seasons and the t- and the temperatures and the kind of weather you would get in Sydney compared with your spring, summer, autumn, winter four part year that got adopted and of course that makes sense you know you had thousands of years to refine this very precise calendar it was working on not an annual cycle but a a slightly more complex cycle than that and the fact that we really didn't learn about that was interesting to me
2: yeah i mean we had a civilization in this country that used astronomy to predict the weather and um, used astronomy as a calendar for hunting as well if you look at the dark emu constellation um, which is famous in Aboriginal um, culture is that, you know, we read that constellation depending on what season it was to work out when to harvest emu eggs. Um, you know, there's the, there's that, but there's also, um, you know, the notion that like we have in, um, up North, we have the wet and the dry season and Aboriginal communities can predict when that's going to happen. Um, if it comes early, if it comes late, and they can they can do it with such accuracy. But that's not the only thing. Um, we had some researchers um, from the University of Sydney go up and try and catch some bilbies, and they had all the bells and whistles, and they tested it um, between Aboriginal local rangers and these researchers that had, you know, almost infinite technology um, mm. to find wild bilbies. Um, and on average, the Aboriginal uh, rangers found them six seconds faster than um, those with the radars and the electric collars and all that. So that can tell you a bit of something about knowing the land. Um, and it's it's communication that's um, and unfortunately it's a lot of it's verbalized, but it's passed down from generation to generation. And you know when we when we do really you know when we do things like take Aboriginal kids away from their culture, they learn they they learn different Behaviors, but they also miss that key part of exchanging of knowledge. Um, so a lot of our languages are actually under threat. Um, you know, we had two hundred countries in Australia, and we could have fit the whole of Europe into Australia with all the Aboriginal countries, and we've only got twenty-seven languages left um, out of that, which is horrendous. Like, um, you know, and these sort of things have happened around the world. Like, you look at the Indian um, Canadian. The Aboriginal Canadian um, people, they've, they've pretty much lost their whole culture, but we're, we are lucky in Australia that we still have communities that are embracing their culture and language, and I think that should be taught in schools.
1: Yeah, I think a really interesting analogy for that is the way that, I mean, you're, you're talking about oral history made me think of this, which is that writing is not something that we are evolved to be able to do. But it is something that we as humans have been doing for thousands of years. We've managed to hack a pattern recognition pathway in our brain with a hand eye coordination pathway and our language pathways. And we've combined those and we've got writing that we then communicate and pass down from person to person. If you take somebody away from their culture or from people who can write and expect them to know how to write, They will not, they won't. And so then they lose these thousands of years of of built up and accumulated knowledge and the access to that knowledge. In the same way, if you take an Indigenous person away from their traditional background, then there is something that is lost and, and not just lost in the way that writing can be lost. You could presumably in future work backwards and deduce writing and have access to that knowledge again. But if it is a purely oral tradition, then yeah. it's just gone forever. When the people who knew that stuff die and if their children don't have access to them, then it's just gone completely.
2: Well, when, well, when we think of Aboriginal kids, especially in remote communities, we think, um, you know, a lot of people think, oh, you know, they're they're rough kids. They don't want to learn. Um, we hear about the statistics, how most of them end up in the system. and But the the truth of it is that they're being... Like they have to learn English when English is their third or fourth language. So, if you could imagine going to France having never spoken French or learned anything in French and then expecting to, you know, have the added pressure of reducing the gap between literacy and numeracy when English is your third or fourth language. And, you know, that is a huge task. Um, You know, I personally can't speak. Like, I, I can speak a little bit of French and a little bit of, um, a little bit of language, but to know three or four different languages and excel is just, you know, beyond the realms of most people.
1: So with all of this going on, you've got your project, you have your, I guess, your goal in vocation or your desire to achieve this thing. What do yeah. you wrestle with on a day-to-day basis? What are you What are you struggling with? Whether it's to do with that or whether it's to do with something completely unrelated?
2: Um, the thing I struggle with the most is I like I'm someone that puts a tremendous amount of effort into everything I do. Um, I didn't have the best background growing up. I um, you know I've overcome a lot of obstacles to get to where I am today. Um, but I I often I often struggle with the you know, there's there's a lot of pressure um, for Aboriginal academics and, you know, we're expected to be role models. We're expected to be the people that shine the light and not everyone's cut out for that. Um, I'm happy to hold the torch. If that's going to help kids, you know, follow follow better path, then that's okay. Um, I guess I struggle with the, the sense of... Um, just the enormous task we have of just getting these kids to believe in themselves because it's just been ingrained um, for decades now or hundreds of years that these kids, they can't do things and their parents believe they can't do things. And I think that the, the limitations in life should be those that we should be there. Sorry. The limitations in life that we have should be placed on our, like they should be placed by the individual, not society. Well, they did those
1: studies with, I think it was uh, women and maths tests. And if the girls were told before they did a maths test that girls were not as good at maths as boys, they did measurably worse in
2: the well, test. Yeah, I mean, we I can speak for the male population. I can say that women are more intelligent than boys. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, but, you know, in, in that sense is that, you know, we, we've sort of we are turning a corner with um, sexism as well. Like Where we're seeing a lot, we are seeing um, women elevate into more powerful roles, and that's just absolutely fantastic. We've got so much more to do in that space. But with Aboriginal people, we've got to we've got to accept some of the yeah you know, we've got to accept some of the bad. There's a real blame culture. Um, you know where What do you mean
1: by flame culture?
2: Blame culture. blame, oh,
1: blame culture. Yeah,
2: yeah, sorry. Um, so there's a real blame culture. And the blame culture is, um, you know, oh, it was my ancestor that was a convict that did all that. It wasn't me. Um, you know, I'm not to blame for all the stuff that's happened since. It's, you know, the responsibility has got to fall on Aboriginal people. But the truth is it's, it's all our fault. The reason why there's a gap is society's fault. And it's the government's fault that they have dropped the eight ball on Aboriginal people. But we've got to remember just before our lifetime, kids weren't allowed to swim in local swimming pools. Um, We had people like Charlie Perkins, you know, leaving Sydney Uni driving up to Moree to protest, letting Aboriginal kids swim in the swimming pool. And that happened within a hundred years. So we have come a long way but we've yeah. we got so far to go.
1: One of the things that sort of strikes me about, here's, here's a, I'm going to draw a kind of a long bow and go for a little bit of a long walk here, but c- come with me if you will. Um, one of the, the problems that I have with feminism as a movement is that in order to, and again, this kind of comes back to rhetoric, which is my area of interest, in order to present um, access to male spaces by women as a viable option, it was presented as just that, access to existing things that you were allowed into this boys' club. And that's an easier sell. It's not an easy sell, but it's an easier sell than let's fundamentally change the boys' club. So the sales pitch was let women in, not restructure things so that women are given value in different ways and and people are given value in different ways and society uh, attributes value in different ways we're not going to change anything you're just going to let women in the door yeah and yeah. i think that does a disservice to the broad complexity of the human experience and i think it's a, a very similar thing with with aboriginality or general uh, sort of racial politics, the idea is give people access to white spaces. Don't change anything. Rather than rather than sort of opening everything up, it's, it's this one door that you can go in. You're allowed yeah. to be successful if you mimic white success or you have the same values as white people or you, you know, you buy into capitalism, you buy into the patriarchy, you buy into the structure. For me, it doesn't matter that there's a lady running Yahoo if Yahoo yeah. is still... Engaging in corrupt business practices and trying to buy off politicians.
2: Oh, I, I 100% agree. And I mean, the the problem is, is that if you get too extreme with these views, you actually you create a larger gap between men and women, um, and the same with Aboriginal people as well. If we decide that you know, if we give a bunch of scholarships out to kids um, in community, and we make life really good for them. Out of community, they're not going to return to their communities, and then the community doesn't get the benefit. And you can't expect community support if all their talented young people never return to community. Um, I think that there's there's so yeah, many this
1: false dichotomy. Yeah. I think is really damaging.
2: Yeah, and it's 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 a really interesting space because, um, and you know, we're really lucky in this point of history that we have a number of young um indigenous entrepreneurs i don't hate that word entrepreneur but
3: um you know
2: that that are coming in and they're saying you know yes we've we've got this you know education now and this bit of paper that says we can um we can we can be a academic or something like that but they're also um including indigenous knowledges in that technology um, you know, yeah. one that springs to mind is in Digitech. They're a bunch of great First Nations people that are designing technology to teach kids about culture. And, you know, our culture developed over 65,000-plus years. Um, we, we developed stories, we developed technologies, you know, and we're continuing to develop today um, despite all that's happened to us. There is people out there that are adapting our culture, the oldest living culture in the world, to be in modern day society. It's really exciting.
1: Yeah, it, it is. It is exciting, and I figure. I I think for me, the interesting thing when I say uh, the interesting problem, and I mean that in the kind of the interesting puzzle, is is how you move forward and adapt and change things in that combination of getting access to these power structures, which are so important, without sort of fitting yourself into those power structures, without succumbing to the structural rhetoric of those power structures, that you're only valuable for how high up in an organisation you get, for example.
2: Yeah. Uh, Uh, And
1: I think that's the big problem of our times.
2: I think the, you know, the biggest change that I'm seeing at the moment is, um, especially in the last probably 10 years, is that. A lot more workplaces are doing acknowledgement to countries. Um, they're acknowledging the land they're on and they're acknowledging the First Nations people, this country, um, and they're developing RAP plans as well, reconciliation action plans. Um, but as a society as a whole, we need to probably start talking about a treaty and we've been saying this for probably since, you know, the late 50s about a treaty act with our First Nations people and you know, for those at home, I guess, you know, when, when we think of a treaty, you know, it's, it's not all of a sudden that you're going to, you know, we're going to give every Aboriginal person $2 billion and, mm. you know, land, your house is safe. It's just, a ma- it's just a matter of acknowledging the first people in our constitution, which...
1: Well, and acknowledging that there was a war.
2: Yeah. Which isn't actually
1: part of the history we get taught in schools. We don't get taught even if we get taught the kind of the darker side of of the massacres and all of that, it's always presented as sort of individual acts of cruelty or barbarism. It's never presented as a, a sort of a a war with these different nations that existed. And and
2: yeah. And, like, I think that there's an, there's an argument that people bring up and it's like, well, England won the war and this is what they did to other countries. But it doesn't make it right. <laughs> um, you know, it doesn't make it right. We know it's wrong. We wouldn't go into another country, well, we have recently, Afghanistan and Iraq, but we wouldn't go into another country and then all of a sudden just strip them of their identity and say, you must conform and commit genocide. It just wouldn't happen today. Like, well, this know, is one
1: of the things that I, I think about sometimes. You know, uh, Scotland, yes, specifically. So, Scottish male death rates are incredibly young, Scottish men die incredibly young, and that's attributed to like bad diet and no exercise. But you see, what happened in Scotland was not so very different to what happened in Australia. The flower of their youth was killed at Culloden. Their clan identity was destroyed. Their connection to the the land was deliberately uh, separated. You had clan leaders selling the land out from under their own people uh, to, to turn it over for sheep because sheep was more productive at that time. And as a result, you have what I think could only really be characterized as an inherited trauma in that culture. There's a lot of violence and there's a lot of young, you know, a lot of men dying young in their 50s and 60s. And Mm -hmm. that isn't really discussed in part because I think, you know, the Scottish people are facially indistinguishable from many other British islands people. But if you think about that and you think about that kind of trauma that happened so relatively recently, historically speaking, I think it, it is for people who have these kind of embedded ideas about racial difference, I think it really highlights what actually happened and how easy it is to sort of gut people from their culture.
2: Oh, definitely. And what we're seeing today is, um, you know, is secondary trauma um, for Aboriginal people as well. Like, I think that, you know, we've got kids growing up in poverty, but we've also got kids that are losing parents at 20 um, the, the parents' ages are 20 and 30 and young, really young. Um, we're getting kids locked up in systems um, which aren't designed to, you know, are designed to keep them prisoner. And it's not about reform. It's it's literally about, you know, these kids are mucking up and they're getting locked up. Um, and they're getting locked up in horrendous environments and kept from their families. Um, you know, and these the suicide rate in young Aboriginal males is absolutely abhorrent. Um, You know, and then saying that as well is that, you know, I watched a documentary last night with my partner and it was about um, Indigenous women in Canada. And, you know, the amount of women that go missing in Aboriginal communities around the world and it's underreported or not reported Um, is astonishing. And some of those crimes are committed by Aboriginal people, but they're also committed by white people as well. So it's still happening um, today. And I think that, you know, we need to start looking at mental illness um, the same way that we look at a broken leg. Um, You know, if someone breaks their leg and goes to hospital, you know, they either get an operation to make them feel better or they get a plaster on their leg. Obviously, we can't to operations for mental health but we need to start considering that some of these issues that are for Aboriginal communities are, are health conditions they're the same you need to treat them the same as the same as if someone had a physical injury because um this trauma and um generational trauma is really hard to overcome
1: yeah so here's a thing that just struck me um, Which is, I mean, let me think a little bit because I'm not sure how to kind of word this or or explore it really. Um, So you were talking before about blame culture, right? This idea that people resent the idea that they are to blame for the sins of their forefathers, and it's this odd kind of, and it's true they're not, they're not, they didn't do those terrible things. That they're benefiting from some of those terrible things, but then so is everybody and it becomes complicated. But the the path of the people who are suffering from those things, they're still suffering from them, even though the people who are descended from the people who committed those acts aren't committing those acts. So it's hard to kind of attribute blame. That's one part of this in my head. The other one is, um, I think it was Franklin, a Roosevelt, possibly, possibly somebody else. Maybe a Frank. I feel like the name is Franklin. Anyway, uh, there's, there's a famous quote, and I'm not going to attribute it correctly because I can't remember who said it. He That's said, "If enough. you want somebody to like you, ask them for a small favor." Yeah. People like people uh, who they have helped, mm-hmm. and I feel like there is something in the human constitution. And I know this in a personal way. You really don't like people who you have wronged.
2: Yeah, and I. You kind of hate them. Yeah, and I feel like um, I feel like majority of Australia, you know, appreciates Aboriginal culture. It's a small minority that don't. Um, Yes,
1: but just let me finish this thought, and then I'll let you uh, go. But I just feel like there is something there in that kind of blame guilt. Thing that makes it worse
2: it does yeah and I think that we need to get around the blaming um and get around the acknowledging and you know by acknowledging something by acknowledging a wrong you don't just have to apologize you have to make it right and mm. you know a lot of there's a lot of Aboriginal people out there that are suffering, and you know if we look at the costs of food in community, for example, and I shared this a couple of weeks ago on my Twitter. Is um you know we had a birthday cake that was seventy dollars. Like, what person in the city would pay seventy dollars for a cheap run-of-the-mill Woolworths cake? um It says happy That's birthday. Nice. Um, we've got packaging that says healthy chocolate milk. Um, knowing wow. that, knowing that Aboriginal people suffer from the highest rates of diabetes and um, preventable illness in Australia, this is what we've got in our communities. And you know, I was in a Woolworths in Yukala up in Arnhem Land, and I saw a single piece of celery selling for twenty three dollars and forty cents, and I took a off. photo of it. Yeah, it's and awful. It was half rotten. Um, <sighs> And you know the thing that I the thing that I really can't understand um, the most is that you know we have mangoes right for example and they grow mm. in northern Australia and you know we we probably pay a premium for mangoes here in here in Sydney and Melbourne or wherever you are and you know you might think oh yeah four dollars for a mango is re- a bit pricey yeah right. Mm. These people have mangoes growing next door to their community. And those mangoes get shipped down to Adelaide and then they get shipped back up to the Northern Territory. And then they're sold for like twelve, maybe sixteen dollars each. And when you've got a Mars bar that's selling for a dollar fifty, or a piece of fruit that's selling for five or six dollars, or even sometimes more, you're going to pick up the Mars bar because you can afford the Mars bar and you can afford the sugar. Um, so there needs to be a change into the cost of food in community, and you know you can you can have the travel argument all you want, but there is a considerable markup for these people, and it's not fair. Um, you know, and there's a lot of things that are wrong um, with what's happening to Aboriginal people, and there's a lot of things that are coming from Aboriginal communities that are wrong as well. Um, but we cannot expect to close the gap if we don't close the gap in food pricing. If we've got kids that are relying on schools for a fresh, nutritious meal, like, we have got problems. Um, these The kids um, rely on the schools for a healthy lunch, and sometimes it's the only meal they get a day that's yeah. nutritious. Like, that's not takeaway or um, not bad for them, you know?
1: Yeah, I feel like what Australia sort of needs to do almost as much as anything else when it comes to this stuff. And, again, this is probably just my obsession with rhetoric coming round again. Um, but, you know, pro-social spending is scientifically, you know, measurably the best use of your money and time. Yeah. If you... If you spend your time and your money helping other people, you are happier and better off and you have better health outcomes. Obviously, when you have more money than you need to survive, your spare money, you know, you think, oh, I'll buy that pair of shoes that'll make me happy. That won't make, it really actually won't make you as happy as giving it to a homeless person or going and spending that time helping someone in your community or helping a family member or or whatever.
2: It's all superficial.
1: yeah, so if we can, as a community, as a society, as a culture, as a country, turn our feelings about this whole really, like, twisted web of of guilt and shame and regret and and bad actions and bad outcomes and, you know, most people just want to turn their eyes away from that really messy and unpleasant tangle, if we can somehow frame it up as this kind of... As a beautiful way to, this is going to sound really cheesy, but like heal our community, heal our society. Yeah. As as a good thing to spend our time on, as a good thing to spend our money on as a a country, as a nation, to make a, a, a beautiful outcome. I don't know what it would take in terms of the messages we get and the messages we are taught to shift the society's view away from this. Oh, it's a black armband view of history. To oh, this is an opportunity for something really special.
2: What we've got to do is we've got to stop the band aid fixes. Um, we've got to stop things that are quick solutions. Um, currently, as it stands, one in four Aboriginal kids can speak and uh, can read at an acceptable level. Um, you know, and we only met two of the eight strategies for closing the gap and the thing is, is that we need to, as a, as a society, we need to say, okay, like, you know, things are deeply wrong here. Um, let's go into communities and listen, um, instead of trying to fix everything because some things can't be fixed with band-aids. Um, you know, wounds are so deep that they need time to heal. And the way we do that is by healing with our brothers and sisters in community. Um, you know, for example, I, I, end, I end up sending seeds and stuff to remote communities so they can grow veggies and whatnot. But I had a phone call once from an elder and she'd grown cherry tomatoes and she's like, what are these red things that has grown out of these seeds you sent me? And I said, the cherry tomatoes, um, wait till they're red and eat them. And she calls me back and she's like, do you want to swap crock eggs and um, turtle eggs for those red cherry tomatoes because they're delicious? And that was the first time in her life that she'd ever tried red cherry tomatoes. Uh, You know, and there's, there's these stories I'm having all the time and these are, you know, we've got to get over the fact that, okay, that there's this misconception that Aboriginal kids and families get all this money. And like, I'm still waiting for my free house and free car and I don't have that Mm -hmm. either. A lot of, a lot of the money doesn't actually go to the communities. And if it does, it's really poorly spent. Um, And I think that like, for example, we, we have kids that, you know, if, if an Aboriginal kid gets sent a book and picks it up for five or 10 minutes and then puts it down, then that's five or 10 minutes that that kid has been able to escape into a book um, and learn. And that five or 10 minutes is priceless because that's, that's the kind of thing that's going to spark someone into maybe being an engineer or a doctor or you know that that moment of them reading that book they might find something that they really want to do um, or an interest and we need to provide the kids the opportunity to find that they may not find that they they may head on a trajectory that they're destined to be on but we've got to give them a chance to get off that that route
1: yeah you need a- access to opportunities and access to knowledge i think is you know one of the most important things you can give people i would say the most important thing but then i would say that's probably slightly less important than celery that costs less yeah. than 25 bucks but if you
2: it, but if you got a book on engineering and greenhouses you might be able to invent something that makes that celery way cheaper um yeah you yeah. know and you, in, we, we should be giving knowledge, but we also should, should we be um, gaining knowledge from these communities because um, some of the stuff that these kids know um, easily, the kids that I work with are some of the smartest kids that I've ever seen. Um, and I, I mean, I've been, I've worked with many schools um, in probably in the last 24 months. And some of the kids I speak to are bilingual. They speak three or four different languages and dialects. Um, And, you know, just for example, I was kicking an AFL footy um, up at Gama with a couple of kids, and I said, there's no wind, right? You can't feel any wind. And I asked them, I go, which way is the wind going? And they were able to tell me above the surface tension of what we could feel, what way the wind was going, so they knew where to kick the footy. Um, And it was just incredible. Like, you know, there's, there's a time where I was up in Arnhem Land and the water's crystal clear, right? And you can see all these barramundi swimming in the bottom. And they turn around and say, there's a crocodile in there. I could not see a crocodile to save my life. Mind you, I am blind. Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> but there was a crocodile sitting in the bottom. And this, you know, just to have that knowledge, um, a lot of kids, especially in the city, wouldn't have that. Um, they're brought up on Xboxes and, um, you know. So, like, these kids are just incredible. Um, some of the stuff that comes out of community like we had one little boy that he didn't know how to read last year and we found out he liked dinosaurs. Um, So we sent him a dinosaur book and we said, go to school and keep going to school and keep trying hard. And then we gave him a deadly junior scientist award. And with that came a model kit dinosaur and it was 13 plus. And this kid was eight years old. He suffers from autism and he was able to put that model together within 15 minutes. Um, and just to give you a bit of context, and, I mean, it doesn't really count for anything because it's me, but I tried to do the same model and it took me three and a half days. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was pretty intense. And I was, like, trying to work out parts of it, but this kid just, like, didn't even read the instructions and built this model. Um, and from that moment, I just think, you know, I just, in that, in that moment, I just said, I can't give up, Yeah, I'll work three or four jobs just to make sure these kids have that chance.
1: Well, if it's not going to work if it's just you. So um, before we wrap this up, where can people find you and support you online and support the work that you do?
2: Yeah, you can find me on the socials, um, Deadly Science. We have um, you know, Instagram, Facebook. If you just want to send me a nice message, I really love that. Um, but I have a GoFundMe page as well where people can donate. Obviously, I wouldn't ask people to donate during COVID because I know everyone's struggling a bit. But if you just want to see positive stuff and positive First Nations news um, from kids just enjoying science and education, uh, just give us a follow, um, you know, like and subscribe to Alice's podcast because she's amazing. <laughs> um, and, you know, there's, yeah, there's so much that we can do um, and we can do it together. Um, you know, there's there's a whole notion and I want everyone to remember is that you can't be what you can't see. So you know we let them see it by letting them see it um so we've got to turn the light on and that's it
1: yeah and on on the flip side of that if you follow Corey's work and if you follow this uh this deadly science project then you'll be able to see some ways that you can help because I think a lot of people feel very helpless in the face of complicated entrenched historical problems and they're there is stuff that you can do and it's small stuff and it's stuff that will make a difference and it will make you feel better as well as making a difference. Um, and so there you get this like nice little virtual cycle, virtuous cycle, virtuous cycle is what I mean.
2: Um, there was, um, there was once a, a bit of advice that a late friend gave me and it was good people will breed good people. So if you be good to other people, then you will create good people from that.
1: Yeah. Brilliant, brilliant, brilliant. Uh, and don't be afraid to ask for help um, if you if you're not sure what you can do. Thank you so much for having tea with me, Corey. It was lovely to talk to you. It
2: was a lovely cup of coffee. Um, sorry, I didn't have tea. Next <laughs> time it will be old English breakfast or a bit of jarrah. Um, nice. I've been watching a lot of Kath and Kim lately. So um, if if anyone anyway, if you pick up some Kath and Kim sort of language, I've caught it from there. <laughs> well, that's what
1: I call Australian culture.
2: Yeah. <laughs>
3: Day on Monday morning, when she comes in, she hangs her coat on the highest pin, turns around for to view her frames, crying, Damn you, dawpers, cry up your ends, Loudy rifle, daw, right rifle, day. And when the boss, he looks round the door, tie your ends up, dawpers, he will roar. Well tie our ends up, we surely do. Poor Elsie Thompson, but not for you. Lally-right-fall, doll, lally-right-fall, day. Oh, Elsie Thompson is going away. Is it tomorrow or yet today? We'll tie our ends up and leave our frames and wait for Elsie to return again. Loudy right fall daw, loudy right fall day.